0: You're listening to the Christ Church Toronto Podcast, a recording of the Sunday sermons from Christ Church Toronto. Christ Church Toronto is a new church in Toronto's East
1: End that seeks to practice the ancient Christian faith today. We would love for you to join us in the future. But until then, please turn your attention to the scripture reading. The scripture reading this morning is from Matthew 13 44 to 52. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end, at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. This is the word of the Lord for our church, and it is given for our good.
0: Thanks, Jackie. Let's pray before we reflect on this passage. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do ask now that you would send your spirit powerfully upon this, our church. And we know you see fit to work through very ordinary means. And you also see fit to change and transform our life through your word. And so now as your word is been read and will be preached, please, Father, work powerfully. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing to you, we pray and ask. In the name of Christ, our hope and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Well, he, he purchased the land for $50,000. His aunt was in a bit of a bind. It was time for her to move out and move into a nursing home, and she needed money. And the land had been in the family for generations, and the family knew he could afford it. Uh, His name was Matt White. He was a pitcher for the Red Sox, drafted by the Boston Red Sox. And he used his signing bonus, or at least a small portion of his signing bonus, $50,000, to purchase this family land for the sake of his aunt, but also to keep this land in his family name. But all of his hard work, at his arm strength, and his pitch speed, and velocity of pitch, none of this would matter once they discovered what was under the surface. Soon in the big leagues, Matt White wouldn't be known as Matt White. He'd be known as Mr. Billionaire. And it had nothing to do with his ability to pitch in baseball. After buying the land, he decided he wanted to build for himself and his family something of a home, a getaway home, on the land. And as they began to work on the land, the construction crew found the soil to be altogether too hard. They had to send out geologists to figure out what was going on with the land, and he became cynical and assumed there was some kind of problem, and the land was going to basically be worthless as it related to building a new home on it. But then he heard from the geologist, Goshenstone, a massive amount of Goshenstone. It was estimated that there were over 24 million tons of Goshenstone, on this piece of property. When the geologist called him and told him this, he assumed that he had a problem. He assumed that the land was basically worthless, and then the geologist informed him that Goshen Stone at the time was selling for well over $100 per ton. When it was all said and done, it was estimated that his land was worth $2.5 billion in 2003 when he purchased it. He made the Forbes top 150 richest Americans list that year. His teammates and his managers and the owners wondered, would he keep playing baseball? Would he continue? And even if he wanted to pitch, would he be able to work with the same work ethic now that he knew that he he owned a billion-dollar resource? What they discovered under the surface made him rethink everything he had done in his life up to that point, everything he had hoped to accomplish, everything that he valued. When they discovered what was under the surface, it changed everything. And Jesus has been telling us these parables, and he wants us to understand what his kingdom is like. And he can't really unveil it to us properly by just sort of giving us propositions, some kind of history book about, uh, sort of a a preview book about what his kingdom is going to be like. He has to tell these stories so that our imaginations get inflamed and get enriched and our hearts start stirring and we, we, we long for and we want his kingdom. And throughout all of chapter 13, he's been telling these stories and what we're going to find in these particular stories we're looking at this morning is that his kingdom is going to be like finding something under the surface that changes everything, that changes all that you previously valued, changes all you sought to accomplish. We've been looking at these parables the last three weeks. I've quite enjoyed it. I uh, wish we could preach through parables all the time. They're, they're a blast for me to sit around and think about and meditate on what Jesus is trying to get us to understand about his kingdom. Um, we, we've been saying that uh, the kingdom of Jesus is this sort of new regime, this new government that he's saying is going to roll out And in his regime, he's telling us what his priorities are going to be. He's telling us that as he reigns as king, the power of sin is going to be undone. And the curse that is over our world and our earth, it's going to slowly start to be lifted and all that is scarred and damaged in our world will slowly be repaired. This is what his regime is going to do as it rolls on to the earth. A couple of weeks ago, you remember that we said the way his kingdom is going to roll out, it's going to feel like a battle. We talked about this parable of the soils. It'll feel like a battle just to just to get grip and and understand and let this kingdom grow inside of you. Last week we talked about how the kingdom will actually grow. We said it will start almost inconsequential, you may remember. It will grow with frustration because there'll be wheat and weeds growing up right next to one another, but as it starts to grow, it will grow with unstoppable force. This is the kingdom that he's rolling out. In this passage, is trying to get us to understand what it feels like to really come to grips with and to understand what is being presented before you when you're called to take on, to to acknowledge Jesus as your king. What is it going to feel like? And what it's going to feel like is seeing something on the surface, but realizing what is below the surface will change everything. So this morning, what I want to look at is where the kingdom is discovered, what the kingdom costs, and how the kingdom is attained, all right? So where the kingdom is discovered, what the kingdom costs, and how the kingdom is attained. So first, let's ask ourselves, where is the kingdom going to be discovered? And this, I believe, is part of what Jesus is getting at with these first two parables you heard read. A man who finds a treasure in a field and, you know, decides to sell everything so he can take on this treasure. Or a merchant who's searching for a pearl and finds the pearl of all pearls, in the treasure story, it might seem strange to you. How in the world could someone stumble upon treasure buried in the ground? Is this an absurdist story? And though it's somewhat absurd to us, although I don't know, maybe if you you know, bought a piece of property previously owned by drug dealers, unbeknownst to you, you know, maybe they were buried cash somewhere. I don't know. That's the only way I can conceive of this story having some bearing in our world. But this is a world prior to sort of paper money. And in times of war and in times of, of, of fighting over lands when there's no banknotes, Individuals would often find safe spots to bury treasure. And as the parable goes, a man is out plowing a field, probably as a servant or a slave, for a field owner. And in the midst of plowing this field, he bumps into something, and he realizes that something is going to change everything. And in the second parable, we, we, we read of someone who is seeking pearls. Pearls, in some senses, were much more valuable than even we considered diamonds at the time. It's actually great historical documentation of Cleopatra of Egypt. Shout out to the Egyptian Coptic reference. Two Egypt references twice this morning. Uh, You know of her having the two largest pearls of the world at the time, and these were her pride possession, her pride and joy. Uh, Both of these stories revolve around this idea that someone sees something, a commodity that is indeed expensive. But their eyes are able to see that though it's expensive, it is also undervalued. Both see something and value it, and others don't properly value it. They're amazed by what they discover. And what they start to see changes everything, okay? So why does Jesus tell these stories? And I think he's telling these stories because he wants us to understand where his kingdom is going to be discovered. he's unpacking an important principle that we find laid out throughout the Bible. Principle that you can find all over the pages of the Old Testament. Though the Bible is laden with stories that are extraordinary, the majority of stories we find read are that that the kingdom is often found just hidden in plain sight. It's found sort of shrouded in the ordinary. Or one, One theologian put it this way, God comes to us always and often veiled in the ordinary. God likes to work in such a way that he hides treasures throughout his created world in very ordinary means, so that for those who are on the lookout, for those whose hearts are open and are seeking, they will discover and stumble upon things that will change their life. Now, what does this mean? Well, both of these stories are about someone uh, discovering something that has been overlooked by others, the treasure and the pearl. Something is not properly valued, and the individuals in the parable see with eyes uh, that others aren't seeing, and they properly value something. And Jesus is saying, this is what the kingdom is going to be like. This is where uh, the kingdom will be discovered. It will be, be discovered in things that seem incredibly ordinary. Incredibly ordinary. You know, any given Sunday, maybe after, as my family sits around the dinner table and we talk about maybe the sermon, I find out that they might not have been listening. And uh, they're now brave enough to share with me that they found themselves bored very quickly and they quit listening. And yet that same Sunday, I might have another email from someone saying, my life was utterly changed from the way that you spoke in that sermon. Something incredibly ordinary that it's easy to doze off, to feel a vibration of your phone and, and, and not hear. Something incredibly ordinary, and yet something extraordinary is found for those who begin to get eyes that can see. This is exactly how our God works. A Jewish man, you know, born some 2,000 years ago in the middle of nowhere, dies for sins, and the strategy to spread this all throughout the world is to announce that he rose from the dead, that eyewitnesses saw him, and it's utterly changed history. Proclaiming, preaching, incredibly ordinary, and yet people's lives are not the same. This is what this story is, uh, is, is trying to communicate to us. It is so easy to overlook. It is so easy to miss the treasures that are hidden. They're veiled in the ordinary. The gospel becomes just too simple for the wise. So many people may see it, but few discover it. C.S. Lewis, in his uh, book, The Screwtape Letters, it's a a strange story. It's written by a Christian, but it's a story of sort of a a more superior demon writing to a, a sort of protege demon about how to destroy the faith of an individual who is a believer in Jesus. And in this story, the more senior demon writes to the more junior demon this. One of our great allies at present is the church itself. When he, that is, you know, the the person, the individual, the demons trying to tempt, when he gets to his pews and looks around him, he sees just a selection of neighbors whom he has up to this point avoided. You want to lean pretty heavy on those neighbors. Make his mind flint to and fro between an expression like the body of Christ and the actual faces of the pew next to him. Provided that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes, the patient will quite easily believe that religion must therefore be ridiculous. We have the same hindrances facing us today that Lewis is writing about and this parable is trying to tell us, that God loves to come in the ordinary. He doesn't mind veiling himself in such a way that only those with eyes of faith can see. We say, where's the power? Where's the mysticism? It all looks so average. It all looks so incredibly common, and yet it is right under your nose, and you can't discover it. This is what Jesus is saying, and I've heard this story played out over and over again. People who sit in our church and say, man, this just feels like all the churches before. You guys are doing kind of what it felt like when I would follow my grandmother to church. And I'd say, yeah, exactly. This is exactly right. And then all of a sudden, those same people will say, but I can't believe it all might be true. And their life might be totally changed by something that they took for granted, that they they sort sort of ignored. The whole course of their life, all of a sudden their life is completely changed because it's like as they sit through a service, as they hear God's word read and preached, all of a sudden it's like they're plowing a field and they stumble on this treasure and their life is completely changed and completely transformed. This is how the kingdom is found. It's found through digging through the ordinary. Something catches your eyes. Something is discovered that was previously missed and all of a sudden your heart is stirred. And nothing is ever the same. This is where the kingdom will be found. But now, it will be found hidden in plain sight. But now let's ask, what does the kingdom cost? And these first two parables teach us quite a bit about what the kingdom is going to cost. Because what do the individuals have to do for the field and for the pearl? They have to liquidate all they own. Certainly their friends must have said, this is foolish. What are you doing? Getting rid of all your assets in the name of buying this field or buying this particular pearl? They must have shaken their heads. And what does the merchant do? Does he, does he say, you know, I'm going to try to drive a hard bargain to buy that pearl? And wh- what does the man do with the field? Maybe I can whittle down the price in such a way that I can get the field for a lower cross. No. What do we read? We read specifically of the field. That the man who finds this treasure in the field with joy liquidates all that he has. With tremendous joy goes and depletes his bank account and sells all that he has built up, you know, using our terms. This is, this is like he's giggling the whole time though this is going to cost him everything to get a hold of this treasure, that seems like a steal of a deal to the person who knows what's buried underneath. The greatest of sacrifice feels like nothing. It feels like a joy-filled act. In fact, it feels like good business sense. Assets liquidated, laughing the whole time. You know, think about it. Um, If I went door to door around our neighborhood and tried to sell water for $10, if I knocked on the door and I said... I'm selling water for the neighborhood. It's uh, very good tap water, and it's sealed, and it's $10 a bottle. I guarantee I wouldn't sell a single water bottle as far as I walked you know, in every one of these homes. And yet, I don't know if anyone was at any of these concerts over the summer you know, in the outdoor auditoriums where the sun is baking down. All of a sudden, bottles of water that cost $10 seem like a decent value. Now, why is that? maybe because we've locked out any ability to bring any outside water bottles, sure, but I think you can understand my point. What what am I trying to say? What I'm trying to say is this, that when you understand your situation differently, things take on different values. And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying when you start to see the dilemma that you are in as a creature who's been given breath and talents, who's been given a unique opportunity, a unique place to live, all kinds of privilege maybe we could say, put on a platter before you, that these things all belong to you, and you realize that you've used those things for your own recognition and name. You've assumed you have earned these things. You assume that they are for your good and your good only. And you've not sort of used the breath that was given to you that you didn't earn, and, and sort of return praise to the one who gave you breath and at least said thank you. When you start realizing the dilemma that you found yourself in, that this thing called that the church calls sin, that these behaviors which you do only with your good in mind, not the good of of the, the Creator who created you and your neighbor in mind, but these things you do for your good, sometimes simple things like gossip, sometimes heinous things like adultery, that when you realize the nature and the situation, the debt you're in, all of a sudden $10 water sounds like a good deal. When you realize how dry you are, how parched you are, how in trouble you are if you will stand in judgment before your Creator, well then all of a sudden liquidating all your assets seems like no big deal. In fact, it seems like this is just good business sense. To be found in right standing with my creator, my goodness, selling everything I own, giving all that I have for him, it's a no-brainer. It's a no-brainer. If I was created to live eternally with my creator, if after my death here on this earth I will stand before the one who made me, this this is just good investing. Now these parables ask us a hard question, those of us especially who are part of the church. Jesus is giving this teaching to his closest of followers. And though he doesn't call all of us to liquidate all of our assets, he does call us all to be ready to liquidate all we have. And some of us struggle to even liquidate a couple minutes of our time to serve others in need, people we don't enjoy being around. Others don't want to liquidate any of your privacy. Sharing a meal with somebody and a personal detail about your life, that's that's mine. I'm not going to liquidate that. That, that. That's a sort of rendering of power to somebody else. Some of us won't even surrender our preferences. We want a church the way we want it. It's going to tick all of our boxes. And if it doesn't, well, then we're going to continue to move on. Some of us are too scared, too terrified. We won't even liquidate our reputation in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces. By talking openly about our values, our commitment to Christ, we're, we're too scared. These are real sacrifices, and I wonder, as you hear this parable, you're you're saying, well, if this is how it should feel, if this is what the kingdom costs, but it it costs everything and yet it costs nothing at the same time, what do I do when it feels too hard to follow Christ, when it feels like a chore to liquidate things like my privacy or my time or my finances? If it doesn't feel that way, how do I fix it? And again, I I have to use this illustration again. You have to see yourself not standing at home with a faucet with unending water for pennies, You have to see yourself more in the situation of the concert-goer who feels dehydrated, and $10 becomes a reasonable decision. The way in which the kingdom becomes for you a deeper and truer treasure is that you understand more deeply the dilemma that you found yourself in and the security that is offered to you in Christ, the forgiveness, the hope, the purpose, the forgiveness, the, uh, the life unending, the, the unending joy and pleasure, which is so much greater than any pleasure you could take on in any momentary experience on this earth. This is how you then get a right understanding when you say, I could, I, I, it's worth it to liquidate everything. It's going to cost me everything, but it's going to feel like nothing. The way forward isn't just cold sacrifice for sacrifice sake, hoping, hoping somehow God will see you know, your, your sacrificial actions and somehow be indebted to you. No way. The way forward is to see what has been done for you in this kingdom, what this kingdom offers you, and then your heart begins to melt, and then things which seem like a chore, a burden, will be easy to move forward. An old pastor used to say in one of these older churches with one set of doors as you leave, unlike our church, otherwise I'd corner you today on my way out, uh, used to, as congregants were leaving the auditorium, used to always say, when was the last time you did something simply because you appreciated Jesus' work on your behalf? What was that experience? And he, he sincerely wanted to hear because it gave him great delight to hear the sacrifices people were making. But as I interacted with this pastor, <laughs> I tried to find a backdoor, you know. I, I felt this is guilt-inducing. The way forward is to see what Christ has done for you, and this will then transform how you see things. I must move on. Where, does it, where will the kingdom be discovered? It'll be hidden in plain sight. It'll be discovered in plain sight in the ordinary. What does it cost? Cost you everything, but it's a steal of a deal. Cost you everything, but it feels like nothing. Finally, let's ask, how is the kingdom attained? How is the kingdom going? How are we going to take possession of it? How do we come into it in its fullness? And here we have to focus on this third parable, which seems somewhat out of place after the first two in the bulletin that you're looking at. The kingdom of heaven is like this net that's thrown out and drags in all kinds of fish. And the fish get sorted as they're brought into uh, the dock. You know, bad fish, good fish, bad fish, good fish. Now, why is this parable here? Why does it follow the first two parables? I think the reason Jesus gives this parable next, that Matthew orders it this way, that we have this parable next in line, is that Jesus wants us to see that the way his kingdom is going to be attained in its fullness and experienced in all of its reality is it's going to be attained through judgment. It's going to be through judgment that the fullness of this kingdom will sort of come in. It's similar to the wheat and the weeds uh, parable that we just discussed last week where there's this separation at the end. This is similar to what's happening with this net of the fish being sorted at the end. But it's interesting, in this particular passage, we're told what the judgment will be based on. We see it in verse 49. Who who will do the sorting? The angels on the last day will do the sorting. And what are they going to judge based on? You have to look at the passage, verse 49. They're going to separate those who are evil from those who are righteous. Isn't that what it says? So what's the parable teaching? It's teaching us something that we know deep down in our heart, that the fullness of this kingdom won't be tasted and experienced till all evil has been removed from this world. And yet, evil will not be removed immediately. It will be side-by-side for a season as the kingdom is being brought in because our Lord is patient. He's giving time for people to turn from their sins. He's giving time for people uh, to change. But once this net is fully drawn in, the evil will have to be separated from the righteous so that full possession of the kingdom could enter in. Evil people can't ruin it. And the righteous will take possession of this kingdom. Now, our culture is not a fan of this kind of judgment. They really aren't. And yet... If you were on Twitter the past 48 hours and you saw these terrorist attacks going on in in Gaza and Israel, if you read the comments, we've got a culture that doesn't like the idea of a God who will bring judgment on the last day, and yet some of the most heinous sort of calls for something beyond justice, for some nasty retaliation, you can see playing out on the internet. I mean, I can't stand watching these videos, you know, women, children, kidnapped. It's horrible. I I completely understand. And Jesus is saying, as this kingdom is going to be brought in, these evil actions are going to be side by side with the people who are doing righteous. And the fullness of the kingdom won't be experienced until this sorting takes place. And though people in our world don't want a God who is going to judge, they do want someone to judge. They want the wicked to stop. I mean, Steve shared a great testimony, and I think many people who grew up in the church could share the same. There are wicked people who come into the church and do wicked things in leadership positions. And everyone, Christian and non-Christian, says, "Why do, this person must be put in jail. This, must, this person must be taken care of. We all, deep down inside, crave some kind of judgment. But we get nervous about the idea of a God who will judge in the end. The Yale theologian Miroslav Volf, he teaches at Yale. He's a theologian. He grew up in Croatia. And his family was victims of this Yugoslav wars. His hometown was leveled. And unfortunately, his parents saw his brother executed. You know, during these wars, there was maybe four and a half million Croatians, and something like a million Croatians, you know, took on refugee status uh, in a short window of time. So 30,000 Croatians were executed. Emir Slav Wolf wrote this book called Exclusion and Embrace, Exclusion and Embrace, where he tries to deal with this issue of a God who finally judges. And he agrees that, that we have to, despite the fact that he works at Yale, he holds to an opinion that might be very unpopular there, that there will be a God at the end who will finally judge. And he argues that there is no way we can break the cycle of human violence and retaliation without a strong belief that there's a God from the outside who will judge. His point is something like, you know, okay, Israel has a right to go and to, uh, you know, sort of bring justice uh, with these attacks that have come. But no matter what, it's not going to feel like justice. One party is going to feel like there was either an overpunishment or there was not enough? How do you bring back dead life? People will always be caught in these cycles of violence where they feel they need more, they need more and more and more, and when they demand more, the other party will feel like that's too far, and this will create these cycles of violence. He says this, listen closely, he says, violence thrives secretly nourished by the belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. Again, Yale University, theologian, violence thrives Secretly is nourished by the belief in a God who refuses to wield the sword. His thesis is this We should not retaliate since God is perfect, non coercive love. Soon you will discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence co- corresponds to a God's refusal to judge. What is he trying to say? He's trying to say that the only people who can believe God doesn't judge anyone about anything and will never judge anyone about anything are people who live in the quiet of a suburban world where everything is fine. But he's saying, for the rest of us, this cycle of violence can't be broken unless we believe there is a God who will sort these things out at the end. But if we have that belief... If we have that belief, we can live differently in the present. His point is violence thrives because no one believes in future judgment. So it's actually the belief that there's not a God who will judge that causes our society to to perpetuate cycles of violence that need to change. This is his point. And and he he says this, I'll continue a quote from him, he says this, God will judge not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they've done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. What is he saying? He's saying this. Society, we must, must believe in a God who will finally sort out the bad fish from the good fish if any peace is going to flourish in our world and if we're going to move forward and not get caught up in these cycles of retaliatory violence. However, He's saying in the last day, when that God judges the evils of this world, all of us find ourselves in a real dilemma. Because who among us would stand and say, I'm part of the righteous, the Lord is definitely going to throw me in the keeper pile. <laughs> the ones that get chucked, the ones that get burned in the furnace, that's those people over there. If we're honest with ourselves, all of us realize we've done things which would result in God saying, this is a bad fish. And Vol's point is this, it's a point that you find throughout the Bible. The ones who the Lord will draw near to themselves are the ones who have received and rested in this crucified Messiah. Romans 4 makes this clear. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul writes, Now to the one who works, his wages are counted as a gift. Sorry, uh, not counted as a gift, but as is due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, the faith is counted as righteousness. How is this kingdom received? What am I trying to say? I've been a little bit unclear with these quotes. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say this, this kingdom is going to be received through judgment, and the good news of the gospel is this, that Jesus came to bear and to take on that judgment for himself. He, he, he came to take on the full wrath and curse of God, and now he extends sort of this amnesty as king to say, If you want to be judged as a member, a citizen in my kingdom, in the same way citizens are going to get punished for the way their leaders act, so also if you want to receive the the good response the world gives to, to me for the way that I acted, if you want to receive my righteousness and find yourself in a right standing, the way forward isn't getting on the treadmill and trying to do more, give away more, trying to find this treasure more deeply. The way forward is realizing this, that Jesus has come into this world, and he sees you and me, broken in our sin, badgered, ready to give up, frustrated, feeling like we're not making progress. And he says, this is the pearl I want, and I will, I will liquidate everything for it. This is the treasure I want. This, these people are my church. I, I will sell it all so that I can be with these people. And that's exactly what he does on the cross. And the mystery of the gospel is not just that on the cross he dies and gives a sin like some kind of martyr, or sorry, dies like some kind of martyr on the cross, but something efficacious happens. On the cross, he dies, and as his blood is shed, those who are now his people find an unending forgiveness and a status as righteous, not because of anything they've yet done but because of their trust, their bond, their belief, their allegiance to this Jesus Christ. And this is how the kingdom will be received. It will be received through the judgment, either the judgment of Christ, where you are are found in Christ to be righteous, or in a judgment where you are separated from this kingdom so that all the evil can be eradicated. The opportunity stands before you during this season. Right now, this parable is is teaching us that, like a big net being drawn in, so too, God is working in this world, bringing people in from all different skin colors, all different places of the world, all different backgrounds, all different socioeconomic levels. They're all being brought in, and they're being brought together for this great day of sorting. And our Lord is patient. It's His kindness that allows this time of of, of future judgment to, to hold back so that you have time to find yourself in Christ. And so that you can stand before him, not with a righteousness that's your own, but with Christ's righteousness. And from that righteousness, live as those who rightly treasure this kingdom. This is the good news of the gospel we celebrate. This is why we come together every week. Treasure this gospel. Treasure this gospel more than anything. Because I promise you, though it demands of you everything, when you see it clearly, you're going to see it's the best deal you've ever gotten. Let me pray. Lord, we give you great thanks for this good news that you treasured us, your church. It doesn't make any sense to us. That you sent your son to die for our sins so that we could be with you. That you, you, you gave it all so that you could have us like a beautiful pearl. And yet when we look at ourselves, we see something quite contrary. For my sisters and brothers here, would you help them to understand how you see them? Would your love for them settle deep inside of their bones? And as they realize the way in which you have treasured them, would they then treasure you and your kingdom like nothing else in this world that calls for their attention? Father, use us, use us as the ending of this passage talks about, to be the type of people who are trained for the kingdom, who can bring out of treasure that which is old and that which is new to constantly reflect on this gospel so it looks more beautiful and more shiny and more appealing to everyone we interact with. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.
1: Thank you for listening to the Christchurch Toronto Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website at ChristchurchToronto.ca or email us at info at ChristchurchToronto.ca.